0: Uh, Whenever you see, in in a text like this, in a book like this, even a passage like this, whenever you see a Trinitarian footprint, which is here, we have reference to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit just in this small text, you know that Paul is trying to do something global. He's trying to do something. He's trying to fill these ideas with the fullness of the gospel and of the kingdom. A second clue for this kind of cosmological approach is time and I see in this text a reference to the past so we have mixing of tenses he refers to the past he uses the past tense he refers to the future and he refers to the present so those that threefold reality is another clue that he's trying to express something which is much bigger than his situation or even our situation now. And I'm going to take that uh, lens of time and apply it as I share this morning to consider what is it that he's referring back to in the past, what is it that he's saying bears upon us now in the present, and what is it that he's pointing us to that has to do with our future. So let's walk together this morning through that. You were far off. I mean, Melissa did a great job of this last week. This is part of what he's doing in the beginning of Ephesians 2, to say, do you remember who you were? Do you remember how far you've come, actually? And so that that reference to the past is not just so that you can remember your testimony or just so that you can have some kind of faithful memory, but it's so that you can anchor your experience in the present in something that God has already revealed to you or proven to you in the past. Did we lose sound? What just happened? Nope, that's, then I don't care. Um, <laughs> you were far off, he says, but now you are near. Remember, you were. You were. It's that past tense. And I think part of what he's doing is an appeal to the leadership of God to define for us what is real. You know, Max Dupree famously said that the first work of a leader, the first job of a leader is to define reality and it seems to me that we live in a time when actually everyone is trying to define reality. I I actually think we live in a shortage, a deficit, a famine of leadership and part of the reason why is because everyone thinks they're a leader. Everyone wants to influence us, everyone. Every voice, everywhere, whether they have credibility or not, whether they've earned that right or not, whether we even have a relationship with them or not, there is this attempt to influence us by everyone at every turn, everywhere. And so we are in a deficit of actual leadership and voices, and we don't know who to listen to when it comes to reality, who decides, who defines for us what is or what is not real about the world that we're experiencing. I mean, in an insane world, it's the sane person who seems lost, like a fool. And so, we cannot simply rely on what uh, uh, the loudest voice that gets to define reality, or, or the the most people, the most people agreeing with something. Does that get to define reality? I mean, who decides what is real for you? I mean, really, I want you to think about that this morning. Who's defining reality? You say, oh, Brian, no, no one defines reality for me. I define it for myself. No, no. Uh, and if we have time, I'm happy to explain to you why that is not the case. We take our cues from somewhere. Is it your Twitter feed? Is it your perceived enemies, actually, that define reality for you? Is it your political party? Is it your ideology? Is it people that look like you and only you? Or maybe it's just your own judgment. Or maybe it's the loudest person in your life. Or the person with the most enthusiasm. Or the person with the most anger. Or maybe it's just the most repeated idea that gets to define reality for you. Guys, I want to propose this morning that all of those are inadequate and unreliable at best. At worst, they are delusional and a form of social deception. In 1966, a survey was done, interestingly enough, in Tampa, Florida. And people were asked uh, questions, direct questions about a TV show. Actually, they were asked questions about a series of TV shows. What do you like? Which of these, it it was what's called a familiarity questionnaire. So they were asking, are you familiar with these shows? And they were given a list. And then they were asked, like, how familiar are you with this list of shows, these lists of television shows? And one of those shows was called Space Doctor. And so they were asked the question, people, people were asked, do you like Space Doctor? What do you like about it? And people said, yeah, I like it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. I like it. This is called social familiarity. And essentially, they were, they were, they were asked, uh, what do you like about it? Um, you know, uh, for example, uh, When asked, uh, in particular, one woman was asked what she liked about the program Space Doctor. Uh, She pointed out it was all the scientific work in the show, adding that her little boy really loved that. Uh, Another person thought that science shows were so good for children uh, that this one should be extended to an hour. It actually wasn't long enough. Um, Some of the questions probed even more specifically. So when asked to express a preference for the episode, called Getting Stuck on the Moon versus the episode The Wedding on Venus. Uh, the latter one, one man said, oh, I definitely prefer the latter episode, The Wedding on Venus. And he wasn't bothered, that man in particular wasn't bothered, for example, by the, the, the space baby or the men and women with antennas coming out of their heads. In fact, a Space Doctor uh, was one of his favorite shows, he said. Of course, the problem is there's no such show nor ever was there. One woman pointed out, actually said, it's so, I, I like the show, but it's so difficult because it has all the scientific stuff in it, it's hard for me to explain it to my children. I wish they would just sort of like not do as much of that. <clears throat> this is actually called, um, there's a phenomenon. In, in uh, psychology and sociology, called socially desirable responding. This is this is what people do when they think you want a certain answer. And not only will they say what they think you need to hear or want to hear, as a kind of impression management, knowing inside themselves, I'm actually just making them up. They will believe what they are telling you. There's actually a whole series of research in this field called overclaiming questionnaires, OCQs. And what they do is they'll give you a list of things, some of which are known and some of which are. are they don't exist and they'll ask you what is your familiarity with these for example you might get an OCQ might look like a list of famous people and you're supposed to say what is your familiarity with these famous people so the first one might be Princess Diana that would be like a 10 I really I know who that is I know I know her story I know about her Uh, but then there will be also people that are completely made up completely fictitious and people will report familiarity with people that don't exist They'll say yeah yeah I've heard of that guy have you done it be honest anyway it's not important whether you've done it you've never done it but other people do it (laughs) other people do it now here's what's fascinating this is where it gets interesting when people are told ahead of time when they're cued in these OCQs when they're when they're told there are some names on this list which which do not exist they will do better in fact they will do much better so if you know to be ready for the possibility that some of these names aren't real you'll be looking for them and you'll be more honest with an exception and the exception is people that test high in narcissism narcissistic personality i just think this is so fascinating so narcissists even if you tell them ahead of time there are some people or some things or some ideas on this list which are not real they do not exist they don't care they'll still say they know those people so you'll say, okay, uh, one question I saw was like a guy called T.C. Flutie. And they'll say, yeah, I've heard of him. And, and, and when, when confronted afterwards, I suppose regular people will say, oh, yeah, I feel stupid. There's that on my face. I don't know why I said that. But narcissists will insist that such a person exists. Even when the researchers say, no, no, we put that purposely put that name in there because there is no such person. They'll say, well, you just don't, I, I've met them. I, I know about them. It's some, maybe you haven't heard of it they will retain that belief in the face of all evidence to the contrary, that they are right. I mean, what do we do in a world where everyone is at once trying to define reality for us and where we have I think it's safe to say in the history of the human race never been more tempted by narcissism. We are more narcissistic than ever and yet we are all vying for the right to define reality not just for ourselves but for each other We get, what do you get in the end of that? You get mob reality, mob leadership. And Paul would know a thing or two about mob reality. He would. He's in prison because of it. I mean, it's what got him in prison in the first place was a mob. A mob making claims about truth which were not true about him. About things he had done which he had not done. And I'll I'll tell more of that story in a minute. And so he is stretching to the fullness of his mental capacity and his spiritual capacity to say to us, this is what God says is true. Not what he sees in chains in Rome. Not what his adversaries would say is true. Not what his own people would say is true. But what God has revealed to be true in spite of all of our observations. And what has God already done? What has he already demonstrated? This is is his argument, how it unfolds. What does God say? What does God see? What does God believe? Uh, by the way, in a world that's so tumultuous like I'm describing, this is why you better with all of your heart, with both of your hands, hold tight to Scripture. You better anchor yourself in Scripture, in the words of God, and the revelation of God, in Jesus, in Scripture. You better know the Bible like you've never have, You better live with it. You better breathe it. You better know it so that you are not taken captive by false and foolish ideologies. How well do you know His word will be well it will be correlated to whether or not you intellectually, morally and spiritually survive the time in which we live. We have to remember our past in order to establish that he is Lord of the present. That he alone should define reality for us. He alone gets to define what is real. And this is part of what Paul is doing as he moves us into the present tense. And this is what he says. He moves that tense into he is our peace the reality of what Jesus has done which we cannot, or we will not, see. This is the work of peace in the present. In a time, and I'm sure for him, you understand, as, as, as conflict-ridden as our times seem, his were worse. Everywhere he looked, even in his own body, he was experiencing mob reality. He was experiencing conflict and war and hostility, and the raging hatred between groups of people. And this is what he has to say. He is our peace. Peace as his present reality. Peace as something which exists beyond the visible observation or description of the world in which he's seeing. Because I think any sane person would look at him and say, what are you talking about? Show me that peace you're talking about. Where is it? Have you lost your mind, actually? And this is the context of the passage. The context of the passage is Acts 21. You have to go way, way back in his story to understand exactly why he's in Rome and why he's imprisoned and what exactly he's reflecting on in this time. I mean, it's in Acts 21. I mean, I'll just read you this small piece. Um... Luke writing, when, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, this is, by the way, he goes to Jerusalem, if you remember, and all his friends are telling him, don't go. That's when Agabus prophesies over him and says, Man, uh, the one who takes his belt and ties his hands, the one who goes to Jerusalem will be handed over to death. They prophesied, Dude, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And the they here is not Gentiles, but it's Jews. It's his own people, it's his own community. But the problem, Paul, the reason why his own community was rejecting him was because he, he imagined a world that God had shown him that allowed Gentiles to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so he traveled to Jerusalem knowing that they were waiting for him. Almost certain death waits for him. And remember when he says there, why are you breaking my heart? You know, I'm not just willing to suffer, but actually die for the gospel. Don't hold me back. <clears throat> and so he goes into Jerusalem, and this is what happens. He faces this, this mob that's waiting for him. And it says they 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 stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches. Everyone, everywhere, against our people and the law and of this place. And besides, listen, and besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defied this holy place. And then there's a sort of parenthetical statement here that Luke gives us. They had previously seen Tromphimius, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. This is what happens. And it happens with an Ephesian friend, a Gentile from Ephesus, who's traveling with him in the, in the, in the heat of that moment in Jerusalem. And they saw him even just being his friend. He never took him into the temple. He never crossed all those walls that they created, even though he knows that he could have and possibly even should have. He never breached their laws. He only ever showed honor. He only ever did the right thing, what he was supposed to do, but because he was just friends with this Ephesian Gentile and they saw him walking around the city with him, they put this accusation upon him. Ah, ah, the real problem is that he brought this Gentile, this Ephesian Gentile into our temple. And this whole, the mob begins to attack him and beat him. And there's such a riot that takes place in the city that the, the secular authorities, the Roman authorities, come in and they say, they just arrest him to save his life, to stop the melee. They arrest him. And when they arrest him, they pull him aside and they say, what, are you, what have you done? What is going on here? Because they don't fully understand the dynamics here, these internal dynamics. And as they're arresting him and pulling him away, he says, he tells these, these, these jailers, these, these uh, uh, you know, secular authorities, he tells them, just give me a minute, let me speak to my people. And so he stands there now with this, this legionnaire guarding his back, and he preaches his testimony. This is Acts 22. He preaches about being on the road to Damascus and having this vision of Jesus. He preaches about being the one who was persecuting them before, who didn't understand the way. He preaches about their messianic hope and he speaks to their hearts, one to another. And they listen and they're with him. Until. In fact, he has quite a long sermon which apparently is biblical, J.P., to have long sermons. He has quite a long sermon. And uh, until he says this. This is Acts 22. He says, And then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you away to the Gentiles. And this is what Luke writes. And the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted rid the earth of him he's not fit to live i just want you to i just want you to absorb that statement because i see it everywhere i hear it everywhere maybe not as mortal but with the same spirit, the same disdain. Oh, it's all fine and we're listening to you until you say include those people and that God sent you to those people and then it becomes rid the earth of you. You are not fit to live. And the whole story so they attack him again. He gets jailed. He, they're about to, the, the Romans are about to beat him just to like punish him so that people will see. For no reason. They're just like, we're just going to beat you so that everyone feels good that you got beaten by somebody. We're just going to beat you. This is how we do it, I guess, in the first century. <laughs> we're just going to beat you because people are mad and if we don't beat you, they're going to keep being mad. So we're just going to satiate them by beating you. And he says to them, uh, is it lawful for you to beat, to convict a Roman citizen without a trial? And they say, what? You're a Roman citizen? So it's a big deal in, the, in, the, in the, 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 this far outpost of the Roman Empire for someone to be a Roman citizen. If you live in Rome and you have some kind of citizenship in Rome, you have rights. You have rights around the world in all parts of the Roman Empire. And apparently Paul had that credential." he had that passport. And because he had that passport, he had certain rights. And that meant he could not simply be beaten, which is interesting to point out that that other people could. That actually, if you weren't a Roman citizen, well, they could just beat you for no reason and didn't have to appeal to morality or ethics or any higher power or any sense of jurisprudence or fairness. Well, they could beat you. But because he was a Roman citizen, he knew that. He said, is it lawful for you to do that? They said, what? You're a Roman citizen? What are you talking about? And then the main guy comes in and he says, you, what? You're a Roman citizen? He said, yeah. He's like, well, I paid a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. What, how did you get one? He said, well, I was Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. He's like, whoa, okay. And he, they're scared. So they, they send him away to the governor of the province called Felix. And there he sits in prison waiting. And actually, the first thing that saves his life, the first thing that saves him in the trial is an appeal to another dividing wall between Roman and non-Roman, between citizen and non-citizen. And then when he's brought before the Sanhedrin and they're just saying, can you guys work it out in your own stuff? Can you Jews just work out your own theological issues here? They want to kill him. They're ready to kill him again. In fact, 40 men take a vow that they will not eat or drink until they have killed him. Can you imagine living with that hanging over your head? By the way, I don't know if all those guys died of starvation or something, but he does not die for, like, years. So I don't know if that worked out for them or what. But they make that vow. Imagine that hanging over your head. And to get out of that situation, he appeals to his connection, his relationship to the Pharisees over the Sadducees. This is what he says. He says, brothers, speaking to other Pharisees, Because he would have been a Pharisee he would have been by sect by tribe he would have been a Pharisee and Pharisees believed there was such a thing as bodily resurrection this is something he used a lot in talking to other Jews because when he he of course was he was basing his whole belief in Jesus in the fact that the resurrection is real and has been proven through the resurrection of the image of the invisible God in Jesus But he says to his other Pharisees in the room, he knows that they're divided, again, another dividing wall between those who believe in the resurrection and those who don't believe in the resurrection. And so to get out of that fight, he goes, guys, the only reason why I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisee's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now he's on our side. And a fight begins between the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the believers in resurrection, and and he escapes that way. And this just keeps happening to him until finally he makes an appeal to Rome. This is something that a Roman citizen could do when facing trial or facing some sort of judgment at some far outpost of the empire. They could say, look, I appeal to Caesar. And Paul does that, I think, in 24. He finally says to Festus, the new governor of Caesarea at this time, he says to him, "Uh, listen, I appeal to Caesar. And part of the reason why he does that is because God has spoken to him already in his life that he was supposed to go to Rome. And this is really kind of, I don't know, clever of him because he doesn't really have a way to get to Rome or passage to Rome. It's been a long journey. And so what he does while he's in prison, he says, I appeal to Caesar, and now by law they have to send him to Rome for trial. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. They're like, okay, to Caesar you will go. And this is, by the way, if you remember all his stories of shipwreck, he gets shipwrecked and he almost dies and he gets bit by a snake and another guy almost dies and it's just that that whole crazy story. That's him being sent to Rome on their dime where he thinks he should go anyway. And yet he finds himself in prison awaiting trial in Rome and it all began. The whole sordid affair begins because of an accusation that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. because of his friendship with one Ephesian person. That's why he finds himself in prison, in chains, in Rome, writing this letter. Perhaps he's reflecting on that very accusation made of him his relationship with this Ephesian Gentile. Reflecting on all these walls. Perhaps he's reflecting on the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Maybe he's reflecting on the dividing wall between Roman and non-Roman citizen. Maybe he's reflecting on the dividing wall between Pharisees and Sadducees, the in and the out. He sees that all around him. And he sees the deeper work of the cross and the shed blood of Jesus, his Lord, having something to say, actually. Actually about all of those walls he's talking about the temple the whole thing is about the temple he's remembering the temple his experience in the temple the dividing walls of hostility which existed into the into the temple now listen the temple itself was given as a uh, design plan by god to his people. He said, Look, I want, you to, I want you to build this thing because there's some sort of reflection in the physicality, the tangibleness of this place that will reflect something that's true of heaven, something that's true of the world in which I am existing, in the place in which I dwell. And so the, the whole hunger, the whole, the whole pursuit of the Jewish heart was to be in a place where God was, to experience presence with Him. Where he could dwell with us and we could dwell with him. That is the that is the longing. Really, it's the whole it's the longing of the whole whole of Scripture. And so they built this thing exactly to specs. And there was built into that temple a wall. There was built into that temple a division, a place where some people could go and other people could not. And that division was priesthood and laity. There were places in the temple which laity were not allowed to go, lines they were not allowed to cross, and only the priests could go. And that was built in to the design. However, over time, human beings and under the stewardship of human beings, we added two more. They added two more walls, which were not a part of the heavenly design. They were not actually a part of God's intention. You know what those two additional walls were? One was called the Court of the Gentiles, And the other was called the Court of Women. Two big powerful human walls were added in time and made to seem sacred. Made to seem to the casual observer, to the uneducated, as if those also were a part of God's initial plan for his temple. To keep gentiles out to keep women out walls built not in reflection and tribute to the kingdom of heaven but in tribute to the powers and principalities of that dark world and of this one too and those ancient demons those strong men of racism and sexism found their way into the temple system and they found in that most sacred of places a religious face. And it is part of why that temple had to come down. And a new temple had to be built with what Paul, Peter would say, actually, with living stones. The people of God. And so Paul is saying that... that, that both that wall which was prescribed initially by God, the sacred and the profane, the holy place and everyday people, that not only were those man-made walls come down in Christ Jesus, but actually that last one too. Because on that moment where Jesus cries out on the cross, it says, the, 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 the story goes, the text reveals that the temple's curtain, which made that last place of separation, the place that did exist between us and God, was torn. And the way now was made open. The temple was always supposed to be something to reflect what was true and existing in heaven. I mean, some Jewish writers would have made an argument that the true temple was the people of God. But no one, no one, no one, only Christians, only Paul would have added Gentiles into that would have said that Gentiles can be a part of that new holy temple. I'm asking you this morning, who are your Gentiles? It's not just a history lesson. Who are your Gentiles? Who are the people that you would say, well, okay, everyone, but not them. But not them. And if someone suggested that they be allowed access, you would be tempted to join the mob in saying, rid the earth of him. And he offers peace in the place of hostility and racial bias and political bias and economic bias. Jesus does something. Look, Paul is saying Jesus has done something so so radical, so incredible, so cosmic that it fundamentally it, it 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 presumes to it proposes to fundamentally change the way that human beings interact with one another. The possibility of human relationship is now changed. He is, and, and this is this is just what's been like echoing in my mind as I have spent time in this text. He is our peace. And as I think about my own enemy, because there are people in my mind, if I'm honest, and if I'll let myself be honest, there are people that I say, not them. No, not them. Not them. And I want you to imagine that person, whoever the Gentile is for you. And I want you to imagine looking that person in the eye And hearing the Apostle Paul, hearing the Spirit of God, hearing the Word of God say to you, through you, He is our peace. The two of you. He is your peace. You and me. You and me. And He has made us both one. We who are two are now one if we are in Christ Jesus. And, and, and Paul says something here so incredible. I, I just don't want to pass it over. He, he's talking about the purpose of God in the world. He literally says this is the purpose of God. You want to know what your mission statement is or what, what you exist for, what your life is all about? Listen, listen, listen. He says his purpose, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. What is the end result? What is the purpose of God in the world? It is to make peace, actually, you say, Brian, that just sounds so lame. That just, sound, that just doesn't sound big enough for God or strong enough for God. Well, then you're not understanding it. Or maybe you are. Maybe you're thinking, I already don't like this. You know? I don't want peace with those people or that person. This is why Jesus comes and dies, why we exist in his name in the world, why we exist. This is a triangulation. Between you, your enemy, and the Holy Spirit, I want you to imagine that person that you find difficult to love, you find that group of people that you find difficult to have any kind of compassion for, have any kind of understanding, have any kind of mercy, have any kind of uh, of openness to. Imagine them, that person, that representative of that group, and you, and the Holy Spirit triangulating the the two of you and saying, "Ah, I want to make peace between the two of you. That's what I'm doing. That's why I died. That's why I died. Yes, yes. And we understand he died to make peace between us and God. The hostility which existed in the law between us and God. The goodness of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God. We, we, we exist in hostility with God. He dies for that. But not just that. The walls between us, the hostility between us. He dies for that too. Where is there strife? Where is there animosity? Where is their division? Where is their inequity? Where is their injustice? Where is their ignorance? Where is their disdain? Where is their misunderstanding? We are meant to be there making peace. Because this is what he did. Because it's what he does. Because it's what he has done. Blessed, Jesus said, are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. The family of God. What is the foundation on which family, the family of God, is forged, is built? What is Jesus, the cornerstone of a new family, a new people? Of us all being children under this one Father? It is peacemaking. Because He knew, he knows, that the only way that we're going to be family is if we make peace. We just cannot be family the way we are. With all our divisions, with all our vitriol, with all of our pride, with all of our tendency toward the abuse of power, with all of our tribalism, well, the only way we're going to be a family, the only way the church will be something that's reflected in the world, this heavenly temple, this possibility, is if we are able to make peace one with the other. And listen, I, 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 I know that this might be a little heavy and it might be a little thick for you theologically, but I need you to stay with me because it wouldn't be right for me to treat this text and not, not lay this out for you. The peace creates this is part of what paul is explaining that peace creates oneness it creates family sonship and daughtership and and it actually does part of what he's saying is it, it, it 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 means an end to the prominence of categories that divide us it is an invitation to come home to come home so listen to paul worked this out in, in, in three of his other works. and I, I, Maybe we'll just put this on the screen for you so you can see it as I say it. Uh, let's look at, look at, look at, look at uh, 1 Corinthians, for example. He says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the same spirit to drink. This is, a, this is him working out this theology in, in, the, in the image or the metaphor of a body and the drinking from the same cup. Second thing, uh, uh, um, is this... Is this uh, uh, What am I taking? Yeah, Galatians. Thank you. Um, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen, are there still men and women in the world since the cross? Yeah, it's not hard. That's the easy one. Yes. Yes. You know, genitals still exist. Uh, they're still out there, still very, still very helpful uh, in certain situations. So that's he's not, he's not he's not shaping reality in that sense. It's not it's not a, it's not a, it's not a neutering of who we are. It's not a neutering of our of our personhood or our our gender, or our our cultural identity, or anything like that. But it is the creation of something else. And then Colossians three says here. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave or free, but all, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. This is peacemaking. If you have to say what does peacemaking look like, bear with each other and forgive one another. If you have any grievance against someone, forgive, as the Lord forgave you. And all of these virtues, all of them put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, listen, uh, uh, you have heard it said, so law. Law says, do not murder. You understand that. Don't, don't go around murdering people. But I say, listen, in the world I'm creating, in this new thing that I that I'm imagining in my heart, which you will one day be uh, the stewards of, which you will one day carry in the authority which I give you. This thing that I'm imagining, here's how it goes with us look if you if you're going to the altar and you have any sort of problem with your brother actually you you know you've heard it said don't murder i'm saying look don't even be angry at your brother do you know that that's in the bible do you know that that's jesus said you can't even be angry paul would say later in ephesians in ephesians 4 he's like that's why we can't let the sun go down on your anger because if you do you let the devil get a foothold that's what he says if you let the sun go down in your anger and anger wells up in you, then some, a new wall is being created between you and that person. Don't do it. Don't let 24 hours go. Release that anger. Jesus said, okay, so if you do feel anger, if there is a problem and you find yourself going to the altar to worship and you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember that a brother, you have a problem with a the brother, they have a problem with you, leave your gift to the altar. Go and be reconciled to them. Guys, our worship is hindered because we don't have peace with each other. Our worship is hindered. We won't feel as close to God and he will not draw as close to us. We should leave our gift at the altar. One body, one family, one new person. And peace has two connotations here, which I think is so beautiful because he's speaking to both parties. It's both parts of his family. He's, he's speaking to the Roman person and he understands that peace for the Roman means the absence of war, means the end of conflict. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is that peace which comes through, through, through you know, we, we are, we're not at war anymore. We're, we're, not, we're not here to kill you necessarily anymore. So for the Roman mind, peace is the end of enmity. It's, it's the end of enmity with God and with each other. Like we no longer have to be, to be adversaries. We no longer have to fight one another. And there is peace, and that means, that's, that's woven in here. But then, of course, there's the Hebrew conception of peace, which is different. It's like, it's, of course, it's the word shalom, which, which means something more. It means wholeness, really. That part of what it means to have peace in myself and peace with you and you with me is that we feel, we feel that we are completed somehow together. That We make up something, which is not perfect, but it's good and it's whole. And that means righteousness. We talk a lot about that, and we have to. That means justice. That means one party cannot abuse another party. That means one group cannot take more power and use that power to their advantage and to their disadvantage. As long as that happens, there is no peace. As long as injustice exists between us, there is no peace. Peace is impossible. But this is a part of the wholeness, the peace that, that Paul saying he has given us. He is our peace. The truth is, we're just not going to agree on everything. There's no way. Nobody in this room, given enough time, will agree with me on everything or anything or a thing. It doesn't matter. There's no, there's no chance that we are, with any group of people, that you will find total agreement. So, agreement cannot be the thing that peace is predicated on, it has to be something else. And at least what Paul would say that thing is, is Jesus himself. Well, he is our peace. I actually don't really like this about you, and I don't agree with this about you. And I'm not sure you're right about this. And I think one day you actually may face judgment because of this. But the truth is well, I, I am in Christ, and so are you. And so He is our peace. Not our agreement, not our ideology, but Him. He is our peace. So this is not just about reconciliation, it's, it's, it's more, it's about union. It's this powerful vision of a humanity that he can barely put into words. It's beyond our wildest dreams. It takes us beyond tribalism, social enclaves, niches. It makes sins like racism and ethnocentrism and the oppressive exercise of power from one group over the other whether that's majority culture withholding power or minority culture withholding the sacred things, to make it all anathema, all forbidden, in the kingdom of heaven, in this new temple that he's building. And when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's imagining, apparently, something quite extraordinary, something we've never really seen this multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic, socially diverse community, all united, finding union in the worship of Him. It turns out God is a jealous God, and in Jesus we see that jealousy is not rooted in anger, but it's rooted in love. He just wants everyone he's just jealous for everyone every kind of person even the people you don't like he still wants them he likes them just as much as he likes you you say, but yeah, but Brian that person is blah, blah, blah fill in the blank, blah, blah, blah you know Peanuts voice I don't even know what you're saying whatever you're saying it applies it still applies, he wants them he loves them Turns out there is no shade, no shape, no type of people he does not adore. There isn't. He said, Well, Brian, but you don't know what I've done. Like, <laughs> I mean, I've done some really dark stuff. I've, 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 I've hurt people. I've really, I've really crapped the bed, you know, my life here. Yeah, you too. You too. There's no kind of people, no group, no tribe which he does not love so much, he would not empty himself for them. He is our peace. This is our reality. God has placed his affection on all people. He's made them in his image first, and then he died to rescue them. And you cannot diminish that. You're not allowed to diminish that. How dare you diminish that? And if you have gone around diminishing other people's value in Christ Jesus shame on you but guess what he still loves you too he still adores you too and i don't get to exclude you because you did that you are still the object of his affection even if that is your sin we cannot diminish the value of any human being who takes breath in this world because they were made in the image of God and because Christ Jesus shed His perfect blood for them. You know what I actually think the least regarded of the Ten Commandments is in our time? It's number nine. Number nine. And it's not... I know you don't remember. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> a survey was done. That more Americans knew the ingredients of a Big Mac then knew the 10 commandments. It's important. <laughs> Two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. But can you name all 10 commandments? It's not important. Okay, so and it's not even just number 9 is not you cannot lie because that's not what the text says. That's not what the command is. You should not lie. It says you shall not bear false witness against your brother which is good news for some of you that are a little loose with the truth. Uh, The Ten Commandments is not saying you can't lie occasionally about something. Like, how do I look in this dress, honey? Lovely. You look lovely. That's okay. That's permitted. (laughs) In the Ten Commandments, that is permitted. That was a bad example? Okay. Um, So, what you can't do, what you can't do, it's top 10, what you can't do is bear witness about your brother or sister in a way that is false. I want you to think about that. Because we are just rampant in this area. People you have not met, but they may or may not be in Christ, they claim to be, let's say, the church is a big gnarly thing. It's out there. It's got people you don't like. I get it. And you can start talking about who they are and what's wrong with them, and passing judgment on them, and whether whether their faith is real or sincere or whatever. Listen, guys, that is bearing false witness against your brother or sister. You don't know them. You don't know them like that. It's amazing to me how how quickly we can go into judging a human being on so little information. And what we're doing is we're breaking the ninth commandment. You don't get to bear false witness to who that person is or is not. Every time we decide something harshly or unfair about another person and say it to someone else about people or our friends or or, or another microchurch leader or another movement or another church or another church leader, and you may see their sin clearly. It could be that God has given you the sight to see, wow, that is not good, that is not right what they're doing. You may see that perfectly clearly. But that is not all there is to that person. That one sin is not all there is to that person. And and even even if you're correct in what that sin is, that one sin is not the thing that fully defines them as a human being. God does. Not you and not their sin. You say, Brian, it's going to go crazy. If if you're saying this stuff, you're giving us way too much leeway here, way too much leeway. People are going to get off the hook. I know. I know we'll have to let some people off the hook. And, and those of you that don't know me very well, so I understand, I'll just give you a pass here. I don't like letting people off the hook. It's not who I am. I want people on the hook. You say you're judgmental, I'm more judgmental. You say you want a pound of flesh, I want two pounds of flesh. Whatever, whatever's wrong in you in that way is more wrong in me. So I'm not coming at you as let's all hug each other and just the world be a better place if we just loved each other. I'm coming at you because this is so hard. But it's what we should yearn for. It's better than us. It's better than me. We don't get to define people that way. We, we become the liar. If someone's life is hidden with God in Christ, then they are, like you, a work in progress. A design of a new creation has been laid upon their life, and God has promised to complete that work. He promised He would complete that work. I don't know when and how and how long it'll take. But if you've got a problem, I suppose we should take it up with Him. Or actually, look at yourself, because your design is not complete either. You are not fully sanctified either. And if you're thinking right now of someone who you believe just does not qualify, surely not them, then this text is for you. This word is for you. I know I have people like that to come to my mind. And so I have to, I, I, as long as that remains in my heart and in my mind, I work against the purposes of God, which is union and peace. And I have a long way to go to enter the kingdom of God. finally there's this word that is having to do with the future this temple being built to become something he says to become something and this text is about the temple it's a reflection on the temple first the temple that existed in Jerusalem in that time in which he experienced mob reality and mob justice And eventually, at the end of all things, a new temple that exists in the mind and heart of God, a temple whose foundation is Jesus and whose eternal home is heaven. The first temple was a place that Paul was arrested. It was a building with brick and mortar, and racism, and division, and sexism, and hatred, and the ugliness of humanity, economic injustice. But this new thing is supposed to be different and even that last barrier has been removed this is the story he's telling the world a picture he's painting a model he's building we are meant to be a place where God's spirit can dwell This is the yearning of eschatology. Malachi, Revelation, and then the dwelling of God will be with his people and he will be their God and they will be his people. What is the whole work? Revelation describes that the work of God is actually to create a new heaven and a new earth prepared for his bride so that he could come and live with us. A recreation of creation. A making of a new city so that it was fit for him. So that he could live with us, be with us. So there was no barriers anymore between us and him and between us and each other. And part of that union, I'll I, I just invite up Allison or whoever, worship team. And part of that union comes from putting our eyes on that future, on a greater need. And a sweeter song. Many of you know uh, my family, and of course, I, I have—I have Luke uh, is 17, so I have a 17-year-old son. And um, when you're 17, and you're, you know, a young man coming into his manhood, his his autonomy a sense of self there's a little pushing back that happens and so the other day it was maybe two days ago uh, he and I were kind of conflicting we were we we're going at it and I don't think he would mind me telling you that you know his his beef with me is that he, he just feels put down by me he feels condescended by me like it's never good enough kind of and so he, he's 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 challenging me he's giving it to me you know and of course, my beef with him is you know, his attitude isn't good and, and he, he should be more helpful and more thankful. And so we're just going back and forth. And he's always, I mean, we're, we battle and he's definitely telling me what he thinks. Uh, but there's always res- some respect and love there. I, don't, I would never, I don't, I don't want to paint a picture of him as being some petulant teenager. He's not. But he's, he was mad at me. And we were We were battling. We were battling and you know just then my uh most troubled child my wayward daughter uh, showed up and we haven't seen her for you know probably weeks and you know some of you know a little her story i i won't go into it but it's 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 grave it's heartbreaking it's all-encompassing. It's every, every tear a person can shed, I have shed for her. We have shed for her. And so she sweeps into our lives again like a tornado in that moment. He and I, we, we put aside our, our conflict. We set it down as if to say, we'll, we'll get back to this maybe. And the both of us become partners because you know she needs us and it's a team i mean we try try to say something they they all lean back. all the family was there they all everyone leans back and lets me say some things and then it's not really working not effective it's just creating anger rage whatever she rushes off and then it's it's actually luke that goes off after her And he's outside trying to console her trying to reason with her trying to trying to be that link that last little link to life to her and the rest of us were inside we just prayed we you know we, we we circled up and we said god come on in the name of Jesus. And that prayer was for her, but that prayer was also for him. And we prayed that he would be filled, that he would be the, 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 that when she looked into his eyes, she would be looking into Jesus' eyes. And we needed him to be the missionary, the sent one into that moment in time. And we stood in the heavens and in and, and, and that place between heaven and earth. We stood there for him, contending for him, contending for her. And I wish I had a better ending. I wish I had a better story for how that goes, but she still continues to be in a difficult place, and we, we weep for her, but not just me. He does too. The whole family does, and so when she was gone, she finally just took off again, and when she was gone, I went upstairs, and we just had a moment, he and I, and I just looked at him, and he looked at me, and I just said, son, I don't, I don't want anything to be between us. I'm sorry for whatever I've done to you. And he said, Dad, I'm sorry. And maybe that's still there, that tension is still there. He's a young man, he's got to push back on me. And find his own legs, his own voice. That's always gonna be there. That's okay. And maybe I'm not still totally perfectly happy with all of his behavior as a 17 year old, but you know what? When I look at that and I look at this great need, when I look at us, I just say, We're okay, actually. And we know that there is a unity that happens, a union that happens when we look at the greater expression of evil. Look, I know the church is messed up. We're messed up. I know that there's broken relationships, even in this room. I know there's broken relationships in the, in the network, in every church, in every, every place we go. I know there's broken relationships between this church and that church, between this kind of Christian and that kind of Christian. I know, and I know that all of those great evils which beset the world also beset us. We're not immune from them. They still exist. They still pop up. They still have to be resisted. And yet, when we look at that honestly and openly, and we look at the way that the world is, it's nothing compared, actually. It is so much worse out there, so much darker. And we have to find union again in the yearning for that. This is why that last line where Paul says, I'm still just the guy sent to the Gentiles. It's all just, in the end, me. That's why I'm going. That's why I'm with you. That's why I don't give up. There's that union in mission. And how do we overcome evil anyway? Just give me another minute. How do we overcome evil anyway? There is that greater need, but there is also that sweeter song. I love the story of Ulysses, Homer's that great ancient epic narrative where Ulysses is meant to traverse the the, the the troubled waters where the sirens sing. And as the story goes, there's these treacherous rocks and these beautiful voices, these these sort of almost angelic spirits, they sing this song which lures sailors to the rocks to crash their boats and, and their lives and those beautiful songs are sung in a way that become danger and so the only way that Ulysses can think to get through this part of these troubled waters is he tells all of his uh, crew to take beeswax and jam it in their ears and then he says I want you to tie me to the mast of the ship and so they tie Ulysses completely to the mast and he says no matter what I say no matter what I say no matter what, I, what, what you see in my face don't untie me and they somehow escape the siren's song. But you know, there's another story of a guy called Orpheus who also successfully traverses those siren waters. And this is what he does. When his boat comes upon that part of the water, he turns to his crew, he looks upon them, and then he grabs a musical instrument. And as the story goes, he plays it so masterfully and so beautifully and so sweetly and so transcendently that every single crew member is completely transfixed on his playing and the beauty of his song and they don't hear the sirens. And they too escape. I think there's two ways to overcome evil, guys. You can restrict yourself, you can tie yourself up, you can create rules and boundaries to keep you away from evil things. We could just all go into some cave somewhere and not listen to social media and not be in the world and pull ourselves completely out of anybody that was going to say anything other than biblical truth to us. We could retreat. We could restrict our lives and maybe we would escape this present darkness. But there is another way. I think it's Paul's way. It is to sing a sweeter song. It is to hear a sweeter song. And when we hear those those pained, uh, uh, striving voices saying, "This is true of these people or those people," we hear a sweeter song. I saw that documentary about Mr. Rogers. Did anyone see that Mr. Rogers documentary? You should should take a couple hours and do that. Grown people bawling like babies. Mr. Simeon, my 14 year old, who's Mr. Rogers? I just, I just I just I just want to cry, crawl up in a bowl somewhere and cry. You remember Mr. Rogers? Fred Rogers sang a sweeter song. He wasn't a fool. He he knew he knew the troubles in the world. He he faced them. That's why he had shows about racism. That's why he had shows about suicide. That's why he had shows about assassination. Little king, whatever, and puppets. Well, what is assassination? That's what they did. He wasn't afraid of the world. But he sang a sweeter song over them. So strong was the power of that man's vision that one time thieves stole his car. They stole his car. And when they found out, they'd taken his car, and when they found out it was Fred Rogers' car, they put it back. <laughs> put it back in his parking spot. When Martin King was marching in Chicago for open housing, one of the hardest places he ever did work, he said he never saw such hatred in the face of white people as he did there. Some woman came up to him as they were marching. She came up to him and she spit on him. She spit on him. Yelling at him, cursing him. And Andrew Young, his, his close friend and confidant, reports this story that he said to this woman who just spit on him, I want you to imagine this, And cursing him, he said to her, oh ma'am, you're too beautiful to be so mean. And Andrew Young would say that this woman, sometime later, only, only maybe an hour later, would come back, find him, and say to him, I'm so sorry I should not have been so rude and king would say in another place we will win this this is his vision this is this kingdom seed placed in his mind he said we will win talking about his people we will win a double victory because we will win our freedom and we will win you he sang that sweeter song of the kingdom of heaven, of a temple that was not made with human hands, where God could dwell and he could be our God and we could be his people. And I'm asking you this morning one last question before we come to the table. I want you to take a deep, penetrating inventory. If you're a leader, I want you to listen to me. And even if you just have a little influence around your life, I want you to ask this question of yourself. What about the temple that you're building? Does it have dividing walls in it? Is the way open to all people in your temple? Will yours have to be torn down one day to make room for the true temple? Or is yours a place where God can actually dwell? Is your life such a place? Just your life. Is your home such a place? Is your microchurch such a place? Bow your heads with me. Lord, we come to this table again in reverent awe, who you are and what you've done you get to define reality over our lives today and every day you get to say who has value not us not the loudest voices not the person with the most anger you and Lord though it's hard and we don't we don't really fully understand how to do it we want you to be our peace bring an end to conflict and strife in us and around us in our nation, and our world to bring wholeness and fairness and life in our small kingdoms and the bigger ones in which we walk you alone are God On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of all people's sins, every tribe, every tongue Every nation. And when we come to this table, we are one family. When we eat from this table, broken as we are, imperfect as we are, divided as we feel, we come to find union with you here. So guys, I don't know what God needs to do in your heart this morning as you come forward. We'll move to the sides to take these elements. But my my kind of pastoral word to you this morning would be to think about those people, those Gentiles for you that you just need to possibly let go or repent. Could be a person actually or a group of people. Just let them do that deep work in you. And maybe you're the one that's been Rejected. Maybe you're the one that's felt excluded from the things of God, from justice or fairness. This letter was written for you then. It was written to say that actually, he's made something new and you're a part of it. And no one can take that away from you. So this morning as you come forward, let him redefine your reality celebrate with me again this great cosmic work that he has done in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. In Jesus' name. When you guys are ready, come forward.